turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Matthew, and we kind of have a mini-series going on in the middle of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. And this is our fourth week on that section. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 uh, through 26 this morning. 21 through 26. In 2010... A teenager named Colton Harris Moore taught himself how to fly a plane using a simulation program, but he never had a proper pilot's license. This young man was able to steal hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of airplanes, cars, and boats, all because he did it barefoot. Since the police usually find people based on their sneaker impressions or thumbprints or fingerprints, uh, he figured he would be safe uh, because they didn't keep a record of toe prints. And it turns out he was right for quite a while. He took off his shoes and he got away with stealing those vehicles. He earned the nickname the Barefoot Bandit and continued to repeat the process over and over again. And he almost got away with it. Uh, he was finally caught and sent to prison in 2010 when he was just 19 years old. And he completed his full sentencing and is, now, and is released on probation in 2016. So getting away with a crime, or as we call our sermon this morning, getting away with murder, is something that actually is quite fascinating in our society today. In fact, if you Google that term today when you get home, getting away with murder, it's going to pull up a whole list of TV shows, documentaries, books uh, about people who've committed crimes and either gotten away with it or almost got away with it. Now, if you actually got away with it, would they write a book about you? I don't know. At least somebody suspects that you that you did it. But, you know, people are fascinated with this topic of getting away with murder, getting away with crime. And maybe that's because of the injustice of it. That just captures our imagination. That person committed a murder. There's no way they should have gotten off uh, free. Maybe it's because uh, there's a fear that it could happen to you uh, to get away with that this could happen to you. Or maybe it's because of an unhealthy interest in how I could get away with a crime or get away with a murder myself if I learn from some of these other stories. But whatever it is, as I was reading our text this week, reading these verses in Matthew 5, I realized that it's pretty easy for all of us as humans to think we're getting away with murder, but God knows we're actually not. In fact, in this text, I think Jesus tells us that all of us at some point in our life have probably tried to get away with murder. Attempted murder, if you will. Because what Jesus tells us is that even if you've never used a gun or a knife or a weapon or physically tried to murder someone, you've probably used something far more deadly, easy to operate. And that would be your words, your tongue, your speech. So this morning we want to look at the text that we have here in Matthew 5 and understand how God wants to transform not just our actions, but our hearts. Because that's really what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. God says, I want to transform your hearts. He wants to set you free from this crime that maybe you've been committing unwittingly. He wants to set you free from this struggle. So if you will, follow along either in your Bibles or on the screen as I read Matthew five twenty-one through 26. Here's what these verses say. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of God. So we want to talk this morning just a little bit about this idea of getting away with murder. It's really something all of us have tried to do uh, in this way that Jesus describes here. Um, but as we jump into this discussion about our words and how that fits into this whole Sermon on the Mount, remember what Jesus is talking about here in these few chapters, actually really in the whole book of Matthew. And that is kingdom living, the kingdom way. It's a whole new way of living. And we looked at that at the beginning of Matthew 5 with the Beatitudes. It describes that, that kind of person who knows Jesus, who's following Jesus, and the heart that they have inside And really what Jesus is unpacking for us here in these three chapters, this new way of living doesn't just include your actions, just doing the right things. It begins with your thoughts and your beliefs. It goes on to your words. That will affect your words. And then, of course, your actions. God's interested in the whole person, not just what you're doing, but also in what you're thinking, what you're believing, and what you're saying. It's a new way to think, really. Uh, this is another place where it's described in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. And that's what Jesus tells us here in Matthew 5 through 7. He says, If you're my disciple, remember he went up on the hill and he sat down and began to speak to his disciples. If you're following Jesus as one of his disciples, he says, I want to transform your mind. So that you will be conformed to my way of living. So really what we have here in this passage, when we look at this, this new way of living, is we begin with this commandment. It says, it was said to those long ago, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So what we have here is the commandment, do not murder. Okay, that's not new information for any of us in here. In fact, if you've read the Ten Commandments, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, it says, you shall not murder. Or if you have the King James Version, you probably learned it as thou shalt not murder. Okay, we've all heard that phrase before. So this is not a new command. Jesus says this was said to the people long ago. This commandment was given by God. It was given through Moses. And so... It was well-known by the people then. It's even well-known by people today. You also notice I put a couple other references up on the screen. Leviticus repeats this verse or repeats these words. All these things about killing people. Deuteronomy chapter 5 repeats the exact same thing when the Ten Commandments are rehearsed again there. Even as early as Genesis, God is telling people not to kill one another. This is a big thing in God's mind. And so, if you're like me, you probably think about the Ten Commandments, uh, actually a lot of people down throughout history, and you say, do not murder, yep, I can check that box, I have never killed anyone, never ever killed anyone. But guess what, 
When we say that, Jesus says we're doing a lot of times what like a toddler does, okay? And so I heard this story recently of a toddler. They got home, uh, the mom and the toddler got home from grocery shopping or something. The mom said, I'm going to put away the groceries and son, don't watch any TV till after we eat lunch. And so after about five minutes, she realized it was real quiet in the house. And so she went over into the TV room and he wasn't watching TV, but she looked over on the couch and there he was with the iPad watching the Cartoon Network. Okay, and and she said, son, I told you no TV before lunch. And he said, I'm not watching the TV. I'm watching the iPad. So technically, right, he was checking that box. He had not done what she told him not to do. But in his heart, he was doing exactly what she told him not to do. And so when we get to verse 22 in our passage today, Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. A couple things in that verse we got to notice, okay? First of all, don't miss that first couple words there where it says, but I say to you. Everyone in his audience knew that Moses, God said through Moses, the Ten Commandments, you shall not kill. For Jesus to say, but I say to you, is actually him putting himself on the same level as Moses, who was the person that they all looked to, in some cases almost worshipped Moses, and took his word uh, to be that of God's. They forgot that it was God who inspired Moses. And so when Jesus comes along and says, I say to you, he's revealing something from God. A new and better Moses, if you will. And what Jesus is talking about here is he says there is the heart of the matter, not just the actions of the matter, not just this commandment, but the thing that's really important here is the heart of the matter. Do not hate. So you see in this passage we see, and actually throughout Scripture, anger and hate are often internal, right? A lot of times you can't even tell somebody's angry. A lot of times you can't tell that somebody hates another person just by looking at them. Of course, we know it boils over sometimes, and and then it is visible. But the heart of the matter is do not be angry. Do not hate is what Jesus says. In other words, he says, if you have been angry, if you hated your brother or your sister, if you've insulted them, you are just as guilty as someone who's murdered another person. So when Jesus says this, he kind of adds this. He says, it's not enough just to say you've never killed someone. Now you also have to worry about what's going on in your heart. Here's a picture of a coach. I don't know if any of you have ever had a coach like this who says to you, you thought that was bad? Okay, you thought it was bad doing 50 push-ups? You're going to do 100 now, okay? Or you ran one mile and you didn't like it? Now I'm going to have you run two miles. That's not what Jesus is doing, although I have to admit, sometimes when I read this passage, that's what it feels like. You read the Sermon on the Mount and you're like, God, it's hard enough not to do the wrong thing. Now you're telling me I can't even think the wrong thing? Actually, over the next few weeks, we're going to see Jesus gives us six of these things. And we're going to take about three weeks to look through them where he says, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. And he gives us something more to think about, something about the condition of our heart. You see, with Jesus, he's not like an angry coach trying to make things harder. He's really talking about our heart. And he says, I have changed your heart. If you're my follower, I have changed your heart. Remember this verse from a couple weeks ago? Uh, This is one of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Now, when I read that verse a couple weeks ago, or I've read it for years, and you probably think to yourself, oh, yeah, the people who are pure, who are doing the right things. But you notice those two little words there. It says, in heart. Jesus says it's not just the ones who have pure actions, but it's the ones who are pure in heart. The ones who are pure in heart will also have pure actions. But it's the pure in heart who will see God. And Jesus says, if you're following me, if we read the rest of the New Testament, if you follow Jesus, if you've trusted him, he says, I've given you a new heart. Now act like it. Act like it. Live like it. And that's really what the Sermon on the Mount is about. He says, if you're my follower, you have a different kind of heart. And I'm going to reveal to you what it looks like to live with that kind of heart. A heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. Uh, a couple other passages I want to point out here this morning uh, that kind of help us see that this whole idea of hatred and anger and things like that, the matters of a heart, are the same thing as physical actions. First John 3.15 Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's a pretty sobering verse, right? From First John, it says, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. And by the way, if you're a murderer, you don't have eternal life. You might think, my goodness, what? I can't say I've never hated my brother. It's probably been a few years. It's a little easier, I think, to hate your brother when you're a teenager. At least for me, it was. But that is a scary verse. But I think what, what John is getting at, what Jesus is getting at here in the Sermon on the Mount is this. God has transformed your heart through a relationship with Jesus. He's transformed your heart. And it's not now just about external behavior. It's not about just checking that box and saying, I've never done that. It's more about your heart that God is changing. He wants your heart to follow after him, to have a relationship with him. To have life living inside you. Because I would tell you this. I think the law, even in the Old Testament, like the Ten Commandments, it was never about the spirit of the law, I should say. The spirit of the law, the intent of the law has always been to give life. Okay, God gave us the law in the Old Testament to point to the way to have life in him. How do I know that? Second Corinthians chapter 3. This is another important verse I want to show you. In this verse, in this passage, Paul is talking to the believers in Corinth. And he says to them, uh, you are a new people. You have God's law written on your heart. It's no longer written on stones like a checklist for you to observe. God says, Paul says, you have God's law written on your heart. In other words, he has put himself inside you. He is transforming you from the inside out. Second Corinthians 3, 6, he says this, you are ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So just one little comment on this. The letter of the law. Literally, if you're reading the letters of the law and you read through, say, the Ten Commandments, those letters are going to condemn you every time. Because you're never going to be able to keep all of them all the time. You're going to be condemned at some point or another as a sinner. And if you've broken one of them, it's just as much as if you've broken all of them. So the letters of the law, the literal letters that were carved on stone, will condemn you every time. But the spirit of the law, the spirit who lives inside you, and another way of saying that is the intent of the law, the reason God gave the law, was to give life, to give transformation. Because you see, when you trust Jesus, 
and the Holy Spirit, God himself comes to live inside you. He says, I don't love the way you were before I saved you. In fact, I love you too much to leave you that way. And I'm going to transform you into the image of my son, Jesus Christ. One more verse here, Romans 13, 9. Talking about the heart of this matter. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus drives that point home in his teaching. Paul's driving it home there in, in Romans chapter 13. In fact, jot this passage down, Matthew twenty-two thirty-six 36 through 40. This is a passage we'll look at later uh, in the book of Matthew. But this is when Jesus is talking to a rich young ruler, and, and the ruler says, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments rest the entire law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus said you can boil down the entire Old Testament into those things. Love God and love others. Love God and love others. You know, as a church, when we think about how we do church at Trinity Church, we really try to incorporate those values into the way we do ministry. You know, we say we have four key areas of ministry, worship and discipleship, community and mission reflecting what God is trying to do through his law, giving life. The heart of the law is to give life, to love God and love others. Worship and discipleship are that relationship with God, growing with him. Community and mission is reaching out to others and helping others grow. The heart of the matter is your heart. And God says it's not just about checking the box. So when we come to this topic, though, this very first thing Jesus addresses, where he says, if you get angry, if you insult, if you abuse your brother, if you abuse the people around you, you're guilty of murder. Let's talk about that for just a minute. The heart of the matter, do not hate. You know, Jesus says it's your heart I'm concerned with, not just the things you do, but the things that come out of your heart. So he says anger, if you're angry with your brother, does this one ever strike you? Because I don't know about you, if you read the whole New Testament, you realize Jesus got angry sometimes, didn't he? In fact, Jesus got angry enough to tip tables over, swing a whip, and chase people out of the temple. He actually got angry a couple of times. So why is he saying here you can't get angry? I think there's something that's called a righteous anger and something called an unrighteous anger. Remember, Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness we saw in chapter 4. So if he demonstrates something like anger, we know he's doing it in righteousness against something that is truly unjust, showing God's wrath against sin. But we, as human beings, often, maybe not always, but often, the time when we demonstrate anger, it's something more personal. And it's an inappropriate reaction to something that we don't like. We feel out of control, we feel angry about something, and so we react. Jesus says, if you're angry, angry with your brother, you will be liable to judgment. If you insult your brother, you'll be liable to the council. So insert some of your uh, insults. Some of your translations might say, say the word raka. Uh, in other words, just that's just kind of one of the words they used in that day, which was a, a big time insulting word. Or the last one there, it says in verse two, 
whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire, hell of fire. You fool. That word actually, here's a Greek lesson for you. You already know this word. This is why I'm going to say it to you. It's moron. Okay. That's actually the word in the text. Have you ever called somebody a moron? Maybe that was in the nineties when we did that. I know. Um, but Jesus says, if anyone who calls their brother a moron, a fool will be, will be in danger of the hell of fire. What's the point he's trying to make here? All of these are sin and deserving of judgment. That's what he said. You're guilty of murder if you've done any of these. We look at all of them and you might say, well, yeah, I've done that here. I've do that there. I'm tempted to insult people there. I think one thing we have to realize when Jesus says this, and even as we look at some of these other things, is that this, that the deed is not identical to the thought. We have to realize that. Murdering someone is not identical to the act of thinking something bad about them or saying something bad about them. That's not an identical thing. The physical consequences aren't even identical, right? If you murder someone, premeditated murder, you're going to prison or worse. If you insult your brother, you're not going to even be charged with a crime on earth. But spiritually speaking, what Jesus says, the result is equivalent. You've sinned. You've fallen short. You're deserving of judgment if you've done any of these things. And like I said, as I looked at this this week, I have to raise my hand. Yes, I've done all these. Anger, insult, abuse. The heart of the matter is that God is saying, do not hate. Words matter. Okay, Your words matter. Jesus says, your words matter. It's one of the things he's trying to drive home to his followers, to you and to me. The words you use, especially when you're talking to someone or about someone, really do matter. Pythagoras, this ancient Greek guy who who did a lot with geometry, got things uh, a lot more right than just the angles, okay? Here's a quote that he said, A wound from a tongue is worse than a wound from a sword, for the latter affects only the body but the former affects the spirit. We've all heard the saying, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Actually, that's not true, right? So words do matter. Jesus is telling us words matter. They provide wounds and that. What I think what Jesus is really talking about here is is, uh, spoken words, especially critical words, words that tear people down. Remember, Jesus came to give life. He created us to be full of life. One of the most valuable tools the devil has to take away life is our words. And Jesus starts with that in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. We think about where does this happen? I want to just point out what I would call, since we're talking about critical words, right? Uh, The danger of critical or hateful words. I think there are some critical caution zones that I want to bring up to you. The first one is this, in your family. Okay. Jesus actually uses the word brother. He's probably talking about uh, a member of the faith. But let's just think about in your literal biological family. Who are the easiest people to insult or to get angry with, to argue with, whatever it might be? It's the people that are closest to you. So we have to realize that's a danger zone, if you will. Your family, your spouse, your kids, your brothers, your sisters. Watch out because those are some of the easiest people to insult. And you can do it in a sneaky way, right? They don't even know sometimes. Maybe you say it offhand and, uh, 
and you kind of laugh because they didn't even get it that you were insulting them. Guess who does know you're insulting them? The one who knows your heart. Jesus says, you have a new heart. Live in the way that I've designed you to live. So one caution zone would be your family. Close relationships. Another closely related one would be your friends, right? It's easy, especially if you have a group of friends, uh, to say one thing in front of the friends, but then behind their back, you say something entirely different. Uh, I'm thinking right now of the words from uh, Colossians chapter 3. But now you must put these all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. I think that's Colossians 3, 8. So your family, your friends, those are two caution zones. But I would also say in this day and age in which we live, there's a third caution zone I want to throw out there to you. Those two, the first two zones I threw out are the people you know the best, right? Your friends and your family. But I would say we have a whole new zone now called the Internet and social media. And oftentimes the people you might be insulting or criticizing there are people you don't even know. So maybe it doesn't feel as wrong. But notice Jesus is not just talking about if you insult people who are close to you. I think he's just saying in general. If you insult or call people a fool, you're guilty. So those are the caution zones. Just a few. I'm sure you could think of some other areas in which you're tempted to maybe criticize or say mean or hurtful words. Uh, But Jesus tells us those things tear down. They're not in harmony with the heart that he's given you. The heart of the matter, do not hate. But I would just say this. I want to ask a question here that I think helps us to understand where Jesus is going, maybe helps us to see where our heart is at on this. And and this, this question is this. What is it that you believe about others? What do you believe about others? In a moment when you're criticizing someone else or being angry at someone else, what is it that you believe to be true about them? What is it that leads you to be angry or to have hatred towards them? You know, I think a lot of times if if you're really down on somebody, criticizing them, using your mouth to tear someone down, likely you're saying uh, they're inferior to me or somehow they've inconvenienced me. Something's wrong with that person. They don't deserve my time. They don't deserve my love. They don't deserve my patience. And I'm just had it up to here with them and I'm going to let them know exactly how I feel. I'm going to call them exactly what I think of them. So what's your heart towards others? Is it that they don't deserve you? That they're inferior to you? You know, what's what's interesting is Jesus tells us to love a little bit later in this passage, in in this chapter, we're going to see he says to love your enemy. So love your enemy, what especially do you think you should do to your brother or your sister? Absolutely, you're called to love them. The opposite, you know, those things I described when you see somebody as inferior to you or maybe not deserving your love or the kindest of words, really that's the opposite of love. And I would say the opposite of love is actually not hate. I've heard multiple authors say this. The opposite of love is pride, saying I'm better than you or I deserve better than you and so I can talk however I want to you. Jesus challenges us to have a heart that is full of love for them. Because I think when we treat people wrongly or say things wrongly about people, here it is, when you, what do you believe about others? I think it reflects what you believe about their creator. Whatever it is you believe about someone when you're criticizing them, tearing them down, it actually reflects what you believe about their creator. 
What's true about their creator? Think about the great love he has for people, especially those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. The great love he has for them. The ability he has to transform them. They probably have some behavior or something that they've done wrong that just drives you crazy. If you're criticizing them and and down on them, you're forgetting God's ability to transform them. Here's another important thing about their creator. You don't want to forget how God views you, right? If you get so upset that you lash out at other people, you may be forgetting how God views you because you're flawed also, and yet he can transform you. Here's what we need to remember. When you're mad at someone, especially a brother or sister in Christ, they are created by God, and they are in need of his love. That's the one thing in the universe that can transform them and change them. They are created by God and in need of his love. So what is it that you believe about others? I think it reflects what you believe about their creator. It also affects what you feel about them. It affects what you say about them and what you do to them. If you stop and think about it, what do I actually believe about that person that I'm so angry with? What you feel affects what you say. And what you say oftentimes will affect what you do. And so Jesus offers us caution on all those things. So when you feel inconvenienced by someone else or hateful towards someone else, remember that's going to affect what you say to them. And so God calls us to respond to others in love. It's very countercultural. It's very counterhuman. Respond to them in love. Paul David Tripp says, If you want the litmus test for for living your best God-glorifying life right here, right now, don't look primarily at your theological knowledge, your biblical literacy, or your church involvement, although all of those are very important. Instead, you should examine the quality of your relationships with others. That's the litmus test, he says, for living your life the way it should be lived right now. Here's the thing. What do you believe about others? I think some of this is what are we focusing on in others, okay? There's always going to be things we get annoyed with, things that we get upset about, things that bother us. These words from Philippians 8 are an encouragement to me. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. If you think about somebody who you've been angry with, somebody you want to criticize, I would say try to focus on these things that are listed in this this verse. You might think about it and you might say, well, that person, I don't see any of those things in that person. I don't see anything true or honorable or just or pure or lovely or anything excellent, anything worthy of praise. I don't see any of that in that person. That's why I'm so mad at him then I would encourage you, pray that God will create those qualities in them. Pray that God will transform them. Remember, words matter. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says words matter because they reveal what's in your heart, what's in your heart towards other people. What do you believe about others? I'll show you that verse one more time again. I would just encourage you, try to focus on these things in the lives of people that you're bothered by. And thank God for the ones you see. Pray for the ones you don't see. But turn to the Lord. Don't turn to the other person in anger. 
What do you believe about others? I think that's an important question because it reveals, like I said, what you believe about their creator. It also is going to affect what you say and what you feel and what you do. But here's the other thing. What it is that you believe about others and how you treat others because of how you believe about them, it affects your relationship with God. It affects your relationship with God. How you speak to them and how you treat them affects your own relationship with God. I think that's something Jesus is telling us here. How do I know that? I think that's our third point in your outline today, and that is that Jesus gives us a way forward. Okay, Because here you are in the sermon, you might be saying, okay, yeah, I was angry this week. I shouted at that person. Maybe I didn't even say those things out loud, but I definitely thought them in my heart. I failed. Jesus tells us that there is a way forward, and that is the word reconciliation. Reconciliation. Here's the interesting thing. Here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is talking about primarily if you've done something wrong against someone else. He says, go and be reconciled to that person. Later in the book of Matthew, he's going to talk about if others have done things to wrong you, here's how you should proceed. And we'll talk more about that when we get there. But if you have someone that you've wronged, Jesus says, go and be reconciled. And why does he say that? First of all, we see that reconciliation enables worship. Reconciliation enables worship. How do we know that? Look at verse uh, 23. Verse 23, it says this. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So really what we have here in these last few verses is Jesus gives us a couple of scenarios, a couple of examples of how you move forward if you do have something wrong. Uh, and the first one is this. This reconciliation will enable your worship. Uh, we see this elsewhere in Scripture. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. I'm not going to show you this verse, but you can look it up later. It says, Husbands, treat your wives with respect and honor so that your prayers will not be hindered. In other words, the way you treat your wife, and the same would be true for a wife for her husband, how you're treating your spouse and the people around you affects your prayers. Reconciliation enables worship. 2 Corinthians 5.20. I do want to read this verse. 2 Corinthians 5.20, it says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. Okay, did you catch that? Our message is a message of reconciliation. God says, I am sending you out in the world as my ambassadors. And the message you're going to share with everyone is be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. How can we tell people to be reconciled to God if we're unwilling to be reconciled to each other? It interferes with our worship of God and it interferes with our ability to introduce others to worship. So God says that before you come to worship me, he encourages us, he tells us, go and be reconciled to your brother because it does affect the way you worship. If you understand the generous grace and forgiveness that God has given you, be willing to extend that to others. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Isn't it amazing how Jesus gives that list of beatitudes at the beginning of chapter 5, and then he starts just working through it, unpacking what it looks like? Be reconciled to your brother, it says. Here's the other thing. The next scenario that's mentioned there in verses 25 and 26 
is that reconciliation en- enables wise living. So this is kind of just more of a common sense one. If you have a dispute with somebody, you better make it right or it could get a lot worse, okay? Uh, you better work through it and, and reconcile with whoever it is. Look at verses 25 and 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Some people have read those verses and they take that to mean there's this thing called purgatory. And in judgment, you have to go and you have to work your way out of it. That's not what these verses are teaching, okay? This is just a common sense example of if you go to court and in these days the judge says, hey, no, you owe the debt, 100% of it, they can throw you in jail and you're not going to get out of jail until you've paid off your debt. In other words, work it out before it gets to that point. How many times in our families, in our businesses, just things where we're unable to give up our demands on others. You know, we're going to talk about this in another week too. God doesn't call us to be a doormat for people to run over, but he does say, be reconciled to others. Resolve your differences. Figure out a way to do that. Be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. The way forward... When you've been wronged by somebody, or especially if you've wronged someone else, pursue reconciliation. Try to work out whatever is between you. Ask for forgiveness. And in so doing, your worship will go forward. Your way of life can go forward. Your friendships and relationships can go forward. But here's the biggest thing. When we talk about our speech, what does it potentially affect? A couple of verses I showed you last week that I want to show you again today. Colossians 4, verse 6. Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. If your speech is characterized by angry, spiteful, bitter words, critical words, how willing do you think people are going to be to listen to you when you want to share the good news of Jesus with them? God created our mouths to share the gospel. Matthew 5, 16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think this passage is a great example of what that looks like. When we have speech that is transformed by God's love, speech that is the way of the kingdom, not the way of the world, It shines like a star in the universe, like a star in the heavens. And that's our challenge, I think, this morning. This is the challenge I want to leave you with. You have a new heart. It's a pure heart. If God has saved you, he's given you a new heart. Use your words to speak the good news. We know what the alternative is. But God says, I've given you a mouth and I've given you a heart so that you can speak the good news to others. Now go do what I've commanded you. Will you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the transformation you're working in all of us. And God, I know personally I fail. I know there are many in this room who fail in this area. God, I pray that we would turn to you regularly to ask for forgiveness. And God, to depend on you and using our words to give life. Because God, that's what you've done to us. We pray that you'd use us to give life to those around us. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. Now go and make disciples.